Welcome everyone. I'm Sue Barber, author, former IT director for a Fortune 500 company, turn executive coach, and this is the Visibility Factor podcast, where we explore how to raise your visibility and play bigger at work and in life. We'll explore key topics and welcome guests that help you shift your thinking about yourself so you can see new possibilities for your leadership. I'm on a mission to create a visibility movement for leaders to show their value and be seen for their true talent. Are you ready to take the next step towards a higher level of visibility for yourself? Let's go. The Visibility Factor podcast is brought to you in part by the 90-Day Visibility Breakthrough Accelerator Program. Do you believe deep down inside that you can have a bigger career, but you don't know how to get there? You can keep doing what you're doing, but what if there is a better way that could accelerate your progress? This 90-day program is a powerful experience that is unique to you and provides dedicated time to focus on your specific challenge. It gives you the time to develop big ideas and plans to execute them, including the tools, resources, and motivation needed for success. Hundreds of clients have used this same program to take them to the next level in their career and to create a better life. Join me in a 90-day experience that focuses on challenges like creating a strategic plan, how to lead an organizational change, or prepare for a career transition. This dedicated time will help you see new possibilities, recognize your strengths, and take away key insights that can be leveraged immediately. Are you ready to create a breakthrough for yourself? If you're interested in learning more, visit susanmbarber.com forward slash visibility breakthrough accelerator for more information and to sign up for the program. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Visibility Factor podcast. This is Sue Barber, your host. I am so excited today to bring you my guest, Trisha Montalvo-Tim. She is part of my book workshop, which you guys have all heard so much about and so many great authors coming out of that. And she has just published her book recently, Embrace the Power of You. And I would love for her to introduce herself and let's just really dive into this book and how many great things she's doing out in the world. Thank you, Susan, for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Uh, Let's see. So a little bit about myself. Um, I'm Trisha. Uh, I've worked in Silicon Valley for over 25 years, um, working with high-tech companies, uh, big and small, from small startups to mid-sized companies to large public companies. I'm a lawyer, so I've been helping um, on the legal side, but as well as on, on the business and governance side. I'm also, uh, well, currently I sit on the board of a company called Salsify, I'm chair of the comp committee there, member of the audit committee. I'm serving on a couple nonprofit boards. Um, and of course, I'm the author of this new book, Embrace the Power of You, um, which we just published um, in March 2023. And my last operational role was as general counsel of a company called Looker, uh, which is a data analytics company um, that was sold to Google in 2020. So that's on the professional side. But I think um, what's interesting to give context to this conversation is on the personal side, um, you know, on the personal side, I'm a first generation Latina. I was born to two immigrant parents. My father is from um, Ecuador and my mother is from El Salvador uh, and was born in Los Angeles. My first language was Spanish. Uh, and like most immigrants, my parents wanted, they wanted the American dream for themselves and our family. So uh, when I turned around five or six, they moved us out of the city into the accompanying suburbs and all of a sudden found myself as the um, only Latino family in a predominantly white community. Um, and out of love, they really wanted me to succeed. Uh, they were they had thick Spanish accents, so they were discriminated against. And so they didn't want me to go through the same thing. So 
they taught me to assimilate like many um, Latinos and other immigrants in this country have gone through to blend in, fit in. And um, I did that and, and with it, you know, achieved some success, but um, at a cost. I would say, in terms of not really bringing all of my identity, my cultural identity, my identity as a mom and um, and, and a myriad of other things, um, bringing my whole self to, to the workplace. And so that led to um, me writing the book because I learned over a couple of decades that that eventually that doesn't work. So mm-hmm. eventually something else uh, shifts inside of you, like something's not working here. So yes. You share so many great stories in your book. I'm going to start when you were a little girl and you talked about going in front of um, acting agents and, and people who are making decisions about putting you into different types of media. And they had very specific requests of you. And I would love for you to share that experience because I'm, I'm sure you're not the only one who has been asked to make changes to themselves to be what someone else wants them to be. In terms of media. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. We, as I mentioned, we, I grew up in Los Angeles, so we were near Hollywood. Uh, and um, I was fortunate enough to you know, try a little bit of acting. And, uh, and it was really fun at the beginning. You know, I got um, my headshots and pictures taken and, you know, put my name on there. And I was very excited. And then I started going on auditions. And audition after audition, I was rejected, which is very, you know, kind of common in um, the acting world. Um, But what was interesting and a lesson I learned early on was after a number of rejections, my manager and agent came to us and said, you know, I think we're understanding what's happening because I was I was getting rejected for mainstream parts, English mainstream um, parts. But I was getting auditions and placements for Spanish speaking parts. And so the agent said, you know, I think that she's being typecast. She's being typecast because of her name. Um, my lab, my maiden name is Montalvo. And, um, and so they said by just the headshot and my name, I'm just being um, sorted away from the mainstream parts. And so they wanted me to have more opportunity and to get more um, looks. And so they changed my name to McLean. So I all of a sudden be, you know, went from Montalvo, Patricia Montalvo to Trisha McLean. And, uh, and so I remember vividly because it was a conversation in our home. Um, my father really not understanding this. He was like, what, why are you embarrassed of our name? Because it's his name, you know, uh, you know, are you ashamed of it? And I really didn't know how to answer that because I wasn't, at at least at the time, I didn't know to be. I didn't know that was something that made me um, different. Um, But it was a conversation that we had. And and I remember just, you know, the agent saying, you just need to be more American and McLean will make you more American. I mean, how impactful for you at such a young age to hear your name and, and who you are in, in real life, right, is not American enough for for them, right? How do you think that impacted you from that point forward, going into school and other, and other things that you were involved in? I think it impacted me greatly. Of course, at the time, you know, as a kid, you just kind of move on. But, uh, you know, I think it really started the journey of realizing what I needed to do to show up as more American, as more... Um, to fit into the environment around me. Uh, so I, you know, from changing my name to changing 
you know, the way I wore, what I wore, the way I wore my hair or um, even what I talked about, you know, I then, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, being where I was growing up, um, there was a lot of uh, racial comments, uh, particularly around the Latino community. And so I realized in my mind, it felt like it would not benefit me to be identified with the Latino community. So I started really not talking about where my family was from. And, and so it just kind of spiraled from there. Wow. I mean, it's just, after I've read her book, everyone. So please get this because I learned so much about you, first of all, just in your life and all of that. But it's, there are so many things that I identified with um, differently, right? Slightly differently than your experience, but very similar in terms of like trying to hide, trying to fit in, trying to be what everybody else wanted me to be. And I know that was true for you. Uh, I think the one that was interesting was when you talked about, I think it was at a work event or something. And depending on maybe the age of the person or the ranking within the company, how you changed what you would talk to them about. I found that very fascinating. (laughs) And and I probably did too. And I just didn't think about it that way. But can you share a little bit about that? I think that was really cool that you talked about that. Yeah, I I call it the scan, evaluate, adapt process. Um, And I I just learned to do it uh, again to... And I think it's because I realized when I wasn't connecting with people uh, and I knew that to succeed, I needed to connect. And so I, I learned this skill to how do I connect with different people? Um, and so, for example, if I was at a work event, um, if I was talking with a more senior executive, male, uh, you know, the my conversation would be, hey, did, you know, did you see the latest you know, trends in the stock market or industry or um, something around financial metrics or industry to really try to change their perspective of me in their eyes as, as a peer and an equal in the business world. Um, if I found myself with a younger person who was into sports, I would say, hey, did you see the Warriors game? Let's, you know, talk about what happened there, you know. And then if I found myself with a spouse, a a woman um, who maybe was a stay-at-home mom, you know, I would kind of soften my body language and talk about, you know, our kids and the PTA and, you know, the sports events. And, you know, so I just would kind of figure out who who is it that I'm talking to and how do I adapt to them. And, you know, in a lot of ways, many of us do that. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think what I noticed the difference is between, for example, me and my husband, my husband's um, a white guy, um, is that he can have those same conversations, but it doesn't change who he is. You know, he is, feels completely comfortable talking to an older white gentleman about his kids in the, in the baseball game. Um, whereas if I went in and started talking about my kids and and the baseball game, I all of a sudden am perceived differently. Um, so I needed to figure out how am I going to be perceived in each of these situations and had to use the energy of figuring that out. Um, whereas he can just talk about all of these different things with different people, um, or, you know, or the same thing with the different people and it didn't matter. He didn't expend the energy I was expending. Right. I think that was an important part that you call that, you know, just the amount of energy you, you have to use to constantly be thinking about, okay, what can I say to this person? How can I say it in a way that they can see me in the right way? And it's a lot. I, I'm sure you were exhausted. After 
very Boston. I did this for 20 years. I was like, okay. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a you lot. Know, we all, we all want to belong. You know, I think that's the thing, right? We all want to be accepted. We all want to belong. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard when people, society, culture say to you, you don't belong um, for whatever reason. Um, it's a really hard thing. The other story, you shared so many, I have others to talk about, but this one was really interesting to me, your whole experience of being a new mom and how you had to deal with those situations. And I had a slightly different experience, but mine, I remember being concerned that they would put me on the mommy track and not on the career path track, right? And so I was very cautious about talking about my kids. You know, I'd try to duck out for doctor appointments or whatever without too much uh, fanfare and just try to silently go do that and tell my boss. So you had a a much different experience uh, where you had uh, some sneaking to do into the parking garage (laughs) to feed your child. So share that. I would love to hear that. And I think others probably could relate to that experience as well. Yes. And I did all the things you did as well. So when I was having my first daughter, um, I I was at a large uh, public company And I was the second in command to our general counsel. And so I had a tremendous amount of responsibility and he relied on me um, a lot. And I knew that me leaving on maternity leave was going to be hard on him personally. Uh, So I was really nervous about telling him. And so when I announced, and I, of course, tried to keep it quiet as long as I could um, until you can no longer do that. Uh, And so, you know, when I told him, look, I'm pregnant I was, you know, we were actually at a work event. My husband was next to me and I told him I was really nervous and I told him I was pregnant and his response was, how can you do this to me? And my heart dropped and I just like, I don't know how I could do this for you. I'm like, this is, you know, raising a family, I don't know, you know? And so, and then he said, I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. And those words impacted me because like you to me, that signaled, oh, you're going to um, either reduce your hours, you're going to be less committed, you, you know, all of the, you're going to be, you know, I'm going to put you on a different path. And I had, you know, I had plans. I wanted to be a general counsel. I wanted to learn as much as I can. I was climbing the corporate ladder, as many of us do when we're having our children for the first time. Um, so it really impacted me. So when I came back um, from maternity leave, I really was uh, nervous to show up fully as a working mother. Um, it was a all-male leadership team. Uh, there were no women in leadership at the time. You know, this is, you know, 20 years ago. So there were no women in the ERGs. There was no talk about inclusion. Um, there were no women's organizations. So I had no playbook or, or person even to talk to about how do I do this? How do I, how do I, because raising a family was also very important to me. So how do I do both things well? But I was very afraid to show up as a, as a, as a mom in the workplace. And so when I came back from maternity leave, um, my daughter refused to take the bottle. She is, she has got her own mind as she has today at 20 years old and she loved nursing and she wasn't going to quit. So, um, so I had a dilemma because I literally had to nurse her every three hours, uh, and she wouldn't take the bottle. Uh, so for, you know, I think about a month, um, my husband, he, he was a stay at home dad. I went back to work full time 
he would bring her to the office, but I didn't want to like, we didn't have nursing rooms. Um, so I didn't want to bring her and say, Hey, I got to, you know, break and nurse, uh, you know, to all these men. Uh, so I, he would bring her to the parking garage and I would sneak down there and nurse her, um, every few hours. And we did that for, for weeks until we got her on the bottle. Um, and he would even like, you know, have offsite meetings, which were, you know, 30, 45 minutes away. He would, follow me and stalk me, baby called me. He would stalk me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then this is time also before iPhone. So I couldn't say like, it'll be another 30 minutes or, you know, hold on. He would just wait. Uh, because, you know, we would like schedule, I'll be there at noon at the parking garage and, you know, so yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he gets dad of the year yeah. award on that for sure. <laughs> oh, Let's just talk a little bit about the overall book idea for you. Why was this important for you to write? And what do you hope people will take away from this book? The idea of a book. So I never made plans to write a book, Susan. When I was at my last job at Looker, I had started the DEI program actually to support. The first reason was to support working moms as a result of the experience I had as a working mom. There was a young woman that was having her first baby and I was like, this things have to be different for the next generation of working moms. And so we started the DI program. And as part of that, we um, start also started um, ERGs, one of which was the Latinx ERG. And it was National Hispanic Heritage Month. And another program we had started was a storyteller program where we tell stories um, about each other, you know, our own stories to help to learn from each other. And they had asked me to tell my story during the storytelling program. National Hispanic Heritage Month. And I was surprised and a little nervous because I noticed that I had never told my personal story. You know, I had spent my entire career um, really hiding that I was Latina. I didn't talk about my parents. I didn't talk about where I was from. I didn't speak Spanish in the workplace. I straightened my hair. Um, for most people, I think most people thought I was white um, or or they don't know what I was, you know, European or who knows. Um, but definitely did not proudly um, display being a Latina. So that felt very vulnerable to go out um, to talk about it. Uh, but I had reached a point in my life where I was able to, and and, and as a leader now within the organization, um, I, I decided to do it. Uh, so I decided, so because I was nervous, most of my thoughts going up, leading up to that moment were about just getting the courage, um, to be visible in that way. Um, not thinking about the impact it might have. What I noticed after when I finished my talk, you know, I mean, it was like, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, people were so connected, listening, and particularly members from the Latino community and Latinas in general, in particular, um, you know, came up to me after, you know, some were crying and just like, we had never seen a Latina in leadership. We've never seen anyone like me. Your story is my story. And, 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 you know, I just was like taken back. I was just shocked that just telling 
my story, where I came from in my career, actually made a difference to people and to be seen. You know, Latinas are the least represented in leadership and C-suite, the boardroom, venture, uh, entrepreneurs were, you know, 1% in most areas. Um, and so you literally don't see anyone like yourself in those roles. So it's hard to imagine yourself in those roles. And so I remember walking home um, that day and I told my husband, today my life changed. And I don't know how, but I knew it did. And I think that was the first time I realized telling my story um, made a difference and I need to tell it somehow. Um, and so I think it was a couple years later, you know, we had um, we sold the company to Google and, and then we were in COVID. Um, and so I was in the middle of COVID and um, someone had reached out about creating a, um, a group of women to support each other in writing books. Um, and that's how I decided to um, write the book. So do you have like a specific target reader that you want to really find this book and feel like it's for them? So my ideal reader is um, somebody who feels like an other in the workplace, but really um, wants to belong belong and is struggling to fit in, um, but may not realize by showing up as their authentic self is their path to success, success and fulfillment in their life and their career. Um, so the book really is for that reader um, that is struggling to belong, wants to belong. And you can be an other for so many different reasons. I mean, for me, it was my, you know, ethnicity and being a working mom, but um, it can be economic class. You may have grown up in a, you know, a low income family and were on food stamps and Medicaid. It may be you have a learning disability. It may be your religion. It may be your sexual orientation or sexual identity. Um, so there's a number of different reasons why we don't feel like we belong and fit in. And I think this book resonates to anyone who has ever felt othered. Um, but it also, when I, you know, um, ended up doing towards the end of my editing process, um, I also think it's for the ally. It's for the leader who wants to create inclusive workplaces. At the end of each chapter, I have manager strategies. Um, they're very practical, easy to do. Uh, strategies that help leaders create spaces of belonging. Um, and they follow the journey of the reader. So they know like right now, this is how the reader's feeling. Here's something you can do to help them um, bring their whole selves to work and make it um, you know more accessible for them. And I'm really getting some great feedback from um, especially our white male allies that's, that said it's eye-opening for them because they, you know, had similar career experiences in the sense of, you know, they were both corporate lawyers. They did the same things I did and their path was easy. And because their path was easy, they didn't think it was, they thought it was easy for everybody. They didn't realize right. it was hard for other people. And so that um, aha moment is, I'm just so excited about that. And I love those specifically because I do think um, back when I was leading our ERG at Kraft, we did some programs, you know, trying to build allyship for women. And it was interesting because we included men in some of these conversations. And it wasn't that they didn't care or want to help. They just didn't know how. And so just opening the door to those conversations, I think, was really impactful for them. And what was the biggest benefit, I thought, coming out of that is they actually took what they learned and went home and talked to their wives and their daughters and, you know, sisters about, which I didn't expect to be something that helped, but also to 
be a better manager for their, you know, women employees that they had and and really try to help them grow and develop, which I think they wanted to do. They just didn't know how. No, absolutely. And there's actually a study that I just um, learned from a company called Prism um, around this very topic um, that men want to be part of the conversation. They want to help. Like you said, they don't know how, and they're also afraid. They don't want to get it wrong. So I think that including um, them in the conversation is so important. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that this book and this conversation we're having will help with that. I think it definitely will. <laughs> And and having read her book, I mean, there are so many things in there that I just saw myself in, you know, obviously some of your experiences too. So I know it crosses, you know, for any group who's really feeling excluded or not part of belonging in an organization. And I think uh, you, you wrote something, so I, I copied it down. I want to read it. Altering yourself to blend in with the mainstream eventually leads to alienation and disconnection which I thought was so powerful because I don't think people put two and two together that that's happening for them. They just realize that they just don't know how to fit in or they don't feel like they fit in, whether that's in conversations or in meetings or whatever that may be. Yeah, no, I think that's the the real loss because we want to connect. I mean, we want to be part of, um, you know, the conversations in our workplace or in our communities. Uh, and it's really alienating when you don't feel a sense of belonging. I think it, it you know, studies have shown that um, when you don't bring your whole self to work uh, leads to things like anxiety and depression and other, and other conditions. So you also talk about perfectionism in the book and your own experience with that. And I definitely related to that one for sure. So explain a little bit about how that impacted you. Yeah, so I am absolutely a perfectionist. Um, I still have to manage it uh, every day. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, as I have more and more of these conversations, um, you know, I think you know, everyone might have a perfectionism, but I, I, I feel like I see it more um, with women, um, with people of color, um, immigrants, you know, people that have had to work a little bit harder in the workplace to be you know, validated and credible. You know, I think um, research shows that for that group, we you know we get rewarded or promoted off of our achievements and not on our potential. Um, so our achievements really do have to be better. Um, and so we have put that on ourselves. And, you know, for me, you know, my parents, you know, you know, the immigrants, they're like, work hard. You can't, you know, head down. Then the only way you're going to make it is by you know, being perfect by doing it really, really well, everything, excellence. And so uh, I don't know where it began or if you're born with it, but something I certainly have. Um, and it's what's, you know, in one way, it certainly, you know, helped me succeed. I was always, you know, top of my class and, you know, getting all the awards and doing the things. So, you know, it, it propelled me for sure. Um, but the cost of it is that the bar is just unrealistically too high. Like, you, you know, nothing, you overemphasize your mistakes and under um, uh, underplay your um, achievements. And so for me, the minute I achieve something good, you know, I'd go on to the next thing and just see the mistakes and the errors and why it wasn't good enough. And that negative self-talk um, is so difficult to manage. And if you don't even notice you're doing it, which I didn't even notice for much of my career, um, it really, uh, is, is, is very difficult. Um, it really, uh, impacts your self-confidence. 
Um, it impacts your ability to, um, you know, just be kind to yourself, you know, and, and again, those things then lead to anxiety and other things because nothing you do is, is ever good enough. Yeah. Same, a hundred percent the same. And so two things like one, I almost saw it as a way to fit in, right? Because if I didn't make a mistake, no one could call me out. No one could criticize me. So I would never have the spotlight on me, which was, I guess, goal one. Um, but the other one that you mentioned in there, which I think when I read it was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's exactly me. Uh, when I would get a great rating, I didn't see it as good enough, even though that's the highest rating you can get in the company. It should be great, right? But in that moment, I thought, okay, now how am I going to top it? How am I going to do something bigger next time to make them want to give it to me again? And it's so crazy to think about all the things that I had accomplished, my team had accomplished, and yet I just moved past and said, all right, what next? And I'm not sure we do that. It's funny. I was just at an event and one of the um, questions that the panel, that the moderator had sent us in advance that they were going to ask was, um, when did you know you were a badass? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know, you know? And so I'm thinking about this question and I'm like, when is, when will I, you know, when did I know? And then I asked my husband, I was like, this, I don't know how to answer this question. And he said to me, he's like, look, you could win the Nobel Peace Prize and you would still not think you're a badass. And I was like, oh my God, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, hundred percent. You know, like you could go win the highest honor that there is and you would still think like, what can I do more, better, what's next? Um, and it's, I mean, it's really could be debilitating. It really can. And I think um, I just, I'm just, what I do is I just practice noticing it when it shows up giving myself grace. Um, and, and, you know, I'll say, Susan, one of the things that I've learned um, working with entrepreneurs and being in the startup world, um, the attitude there is completely different. You know, it's fail fast, fail forward. You know, failing is a good thing. Um, and actually perfectionism isn't looked um, as good. And I had a CEO tell me once, you know, I, 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 he had me do a project, spent, you know, hours on it. I got it to him. It was perfect. And they get to him and he's like, wow, this is perfect. You know, and I'm thinking, this is, this is great. Yes, it is. This is perfect. <laughs> and he's like, that means you didn't spend some time on other things. It didn't have to be perfect. And it was really eye-opening for me. Like I have to just notice when I'm starting in the cycle of trying to get it perfect is good enough, mm-hmm. good enough. Yes, I, I think about the same thing. And I've tried to adopt imperfect action because... I had such a hard time with this world of entrepreneurship and trying to make things perfect. And obviously it's, you know, it's me leading all these conversations. You can't be everywhere at once. You have to really be smart about your time. So I think that that definitely makes sense. Uh, the other thing I thought you, you know, talked about in a good way was around contraction and expansion. And I think that happens for a lot of people and probably they don't realize it. So I'd love for you to explain that a little bit. And then, especially on the contraction side, what that looks like and how people can navigate that. Yes. So it's a section of the book uh, and a theory I called the wave theory. And um, it's when you look at a wave, you'll see that, you know, waves come and go. And some of them just have big waves and, and some small waves. And the big waves, when they come to the top, they crash hard. And the idea is in life, our goal is to have just regular, normal waves that come and go with not these big highs and big 
crashes. And if you look at life, you'll see these, these periods of expansion and these periods of contraction. And in periods of expansion, when you're going up the wave, um, we all know what that feels like. We are in our flow. We are, our relationships are going well. Our job is going well. We're getting promoted. We're getting in the news. Like it's all, you know, it's all going well. You feel great. And there's some point along that expansion wave, something happens. All of a sudden, things are a little bit harder at work. Uh, A relationship might be a little strained. You're working too much. Like something starts happening and you're out of your flow. And that is the critical time where you decide, what am I going to do here? Am I going to push through and keep, I'm going to keep, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to fix this relationship. I'm going to just ignore what's happening at work and keep pushing through that wave. Or am I going to lean back, reflect and think, what is, what do I need to do right now? Um, and many of us, and I did this for a lot of my life is just like kept pushing, you know, I was like the resilient one. I, you know, I can do anything. I don't need anybody, you know? Um, but what happens is when you keep going, you keep pushing past that, um, you'll eventually crash. Um, and that's what burnout is and, and divorce and other things that happen. Um, and so noticing when that period of time happens, um, really, embracing that period of contraction. And I'm learning, one thing that I learned was the period of contraction is not a bad thing. You actually need it for the next wave. So for the next period of expansion where all these amazing things are going to happen, you must go through a period of contraction. And so a period of contraction can be resting. I'm literally just resting, letting yourself rest, whether it's in a day, you know, within a day, within um, taking vacation or sabbatical, um, really just resting and re-energizing yourself. Um, It might be a job change. It might be something, you know, that maybe that's not the right place or change, you know, your relationship. Maybe it's not one that's really rewarding or fulfilling you. So um, it's really kind of taking some time to reflect on some of those things that might be happening in your life um, and realizing that it might, you know, it might be time to slow down um, and reflect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of operate under the slow down to speed up <laughs> mantra a little bit, right? And it's hard to do that when you're used to moving fast. And for people who are, you know, high achievers, that can be a big challenge. Uh, so I would also love for you to just touch on, since we were just talking a little bit about this, around self-care. Because you talk about self-care in the book, I would love for you to share ideas or anything you'd like to share on that for the audience. It's critical. You know, I that was another area. And, you know, I think my book is all the areas I failed, <laughs> Same. <laughs> These are all things I did not do well. So here are the ways to do it better. Um, I was I really struggled with self-care because I put myself last. I always thought that um, you know, when they, when I clear out my inbox, uh, you know, when I finish the calls, when I, you know, clean the house, you know, when all of these things are done, I will then rest. Um, well, you know, n- n- they're never done. Uh, you know, there is always the list that continues. Um, so prioritizing your self-care actually is incredibly important um, in order to show up uh, for your family uh, your friends and your um, profession and your career and your uh, job. Um, and so for me, the things that I try to do, uh, one is movement. I really believe in movement, whether that's taking a walk. Um, I like to run when I can. 
um, you know, I'm doing now um, the Peloton. So just, you know, and for me, getting that energy and moving my body really makes a difference. I'm also trying to, um, you know, pause during the day more, reflect a little bit more, just get grounded and present and, and what, where the day is. I'm starting to, I'm trying to journal. Uh, I know one of our top three authors um, uh, is, is, has a book all around journaling, um, but I'm, I, I, I'm not doing so great at it. I'm, I'm going to keep practicing it because when I do it, I love it because it makes me pause and it makes me reflect and really good things happen. But I am not great at it yet. <laughs> it's definitely but, a habit to build for it. And I have my own challenges with that too. I start and stop a little bit here and there, but I think that's okay. Yeah. You, you use it, you need it, right? Exactly, exactly. So finding what, what it is for you that um, gives you, you know, time to take care of yourself. Another great strategy I heard from, um, from somebody was that they'll do um, a me date, which is they'll make a date with just themselves. And they'll go out and they'll, you know, go have lunch by themselves or go take a walk and, um, you know, go I don't know, get their nails done or whatever, you know, just where they take time um, just for themselves. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I've been trying to do something like that on Fridays. Some days it works better than others, but I think it's important because otherwise you just go, go, go. And pretty soon, you know, some days I forget what day it is. And it, you just begin to wonder like, okay, I'm doing this for a reason. I want to have space and time. And I'm not doing that for myself. So it's been a good opportunity for me to try more of it this year, for sure. I just saw a, a little graphic and that Adam Grant posted on um, social, and it was a tombstone. And on the tombstone, it said, it was a cartoon. And it said, born, busy, died. Oh my God. Right? Wow. Right? That's impactful, right? <laughs> so I was like, is that what... You want it to say, uh, busy. That's, no, that's, there's more to life. There's mm-hmm. other things. I love Adam Grant stuff because he's just to the point. Man. He just, <laughs> <laughs> to the point. Yeah, oh, busy dead. Oh, that's so crazy. Oh my gosh. Well, I am going to transition us into what I call the Rise Up and Be Visible quick tips. And these are four questions that I ask every guest. So I can't wait to hear your answers on this. The first one, visibility is fill in the blank and then tell me why you chose that answer. Visibility is important to tell our stories. I think that one of the things that's hard for many of us is to tell our stories, but I think the impact of seeing others um, like us in positions of leadership and other ways is so important. And if you are not willing to be visible, um, then you can't be seen. You know, one of the things that I remember in my career it was very hard not seeing any Latina law firm partner, general counsel, executive. Like I just was, I didn't see myself anywhere. And, you know, 25 years later, what a disservice for me not to be visible for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So we need to be seen. Yeah, I love that. How are you being visible right now? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm doing the big thing. I wrote yeah. a book. So yeah. Um, I wrote this book. I'm speaking to, you know, lots of organizations and communities um, and really just trying to uh, encourage others to also be visible. And just like you to, I mean, the importance, you know, I never re- actually realized uh, how important it was to be visible. I was the, you know, head down, you know, behind the desk 
person. Um, and visibility is not only important, you know, for the, for the reasons I'm doing it is to tell my story, but for even career um, advancement and development, like people need to see you and, and, and know what you're doing. And um, if you're not coming out from behind the desk, then, um, then they're not going to know, um, you know, what you can um, mm-hmm. contribute. Yeah, they won't think of you for opportunities if you're not getting in front of them and showing them what you can do. Next question. What is the best leadership or career advice you've received? Well, I'm really right now leaning into um, vulnerability and authenticity. So I I think that um, all of Brene Brown's books uh, really resonate with me. And they resonated with me from The Gifts of Imperfection to Dare to Lead. And and just, you know, I think that as as leaders, um, being vulnerable allows others in the room to be vulnerable and to be seen and it creates psychological safety um, within that space uh, to really create genuine human connection. And I think we all do better when we feel seen and connected. Um, and I think that's an important role for leaders. And what is a book you would recommend to the listeners? Ooh, gosh, there's so many books. I just named a couple books. <laughs> um, you know, one book that I recently read that I um, really love, and this is for your readers um, that might be um, people of color, women of color, um, is called The First, The Few, The Only um, by Deepa Prasithamon. And it is, it's just the first book that I read where I felt fully seen as a woman of color in, um, in the business space. Uh, and it just tells a lot of stories and a lot of data and, I mean, just, it just made me feel validated and seen. So for your women of color listeners, I think that's a really great recommendation. That's amazing. Yeah. And the more that we can talk about this and get people to see what may be missing or a gap mm-hmm. that they don't even realize that, they're, you know, I think that's the challenge is a lot of people don't even realize yeah. that they're not seeing, right? Or they're saying something maybe not in the best way <laughs> and they don't even realize it, right? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately. So, yeah. Well, I loved having you here. I'm so glad we got to connect on your book coming out. And I'm so thrilled for you and so proud of you for your journey and talking about your journey and being your book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we have so much overlap. It was so crazy as I was reading. I'm like, yep. That, that, yeah. That. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think yours is important to tell because others may be looking up to you at this point and saying, well, now that I've seen what Trisha has done, I can be... I can be that person too. It's possible for me. And I think we all need to be examples and talk about these things. It's our responsibility, right? To, to get people and, and move them up the ranks, right? If that's what they're interested in doing, or just be able to use the name that they want to use and have their hair the way they have it. Yeah, exactly. This is so simple. Well, thank you so much for being here, Trisha. I will put all the links to everything that she shared and her book so that you guys can get it if you haven't heard about it yet. Uh, please get it. I truly, truly loved it. And it's even being sold in airports now. Like she's she's <laughs> everywhere now. So <laughs> please pick yeah. it up when you're traveling if you're out there and you need a book to read on the trip. Yeah, it's Embrace the Power of You, Owning Your Identity at Work. Yes, I love that. And it... It's got little people on the front cover. It's just, it's really, really catchy. Yeah. And I know that I just saw it on the shelf when you showed the pictures. It just stands out on the shelf for sure. So everybody can see it. Well, congratulations. Continued success on the launch. I know it's it's an ongoing process and um, I know it's doing great. So, so happy for you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. It was a great conversation. I loved it. Thank you. Yay. I know. Me too. All right. Thanks everybody for joining today on the Visibility Factor podcast and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Visibility Factor podcast. Remember that visibility starts with small steps that are intentional and consistent each day. Be bold, be visible, be the leader you were meant to be. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all of our social media platforms, which are highlighted in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Visibility Factor Podcast.